Uh, and, and now, uh, if you're able, uh, please stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord read together. Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from the book of Acts, and I'll be reading Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 42. So Acts 5, 17 through 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what could come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they may, might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood with them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theotis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Let me, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we come knowing that we need to hear it. Uh, Lord, we come this morning uh, knowing that we need you. Um, Father, we pray that as we consider your word today, uh, that you would... Um, 
that you would bring comfort, that you would bring uh, conviction, that you would, um, Lord, help us to find guidance for our hearts in it this morning. May we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, we are looking at the passage I just read, uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. And, and over the past few weeks, we have followed the story of the early church. Uh, we have seen how God has answered the prayer that the leaders of our, the church prayed at the end of chapter 4 in Acts. Uh, if you remember that prayer, they prayed for boldness. They prayed that God would continue to do wonders and miracles, and that's what we see here. Uh, God has given them boldness in their preaching at the temple. Uh, he's given them boldness in their preaching throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. And God has continued to work signs and wonders among them and through them. And yet we've, we've begun to see threats rising against the church. Uh, we've seen threats uh, like the sins of Ananias and Sapphira arise kind of from within the church. Uh, we have seen threats arise from outside the church. Uh, most not- notably, uh, we have seen you know, this in the form of opposition, uh, even arrest by the high priests and by the Sadducees. And in our passage this morning, the apostles are arrested once again. But this time, it's not just Peter and John who are arrested, but all of the apostles who are teaching at the temple. And when the high priest commanded Peter and John to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, they told them uh, that they must obey God rather than man. And that's what they've done. And that's why they're being arrested again. Uh, They've continued uh, to disobey the high priest and Sadducees. They've continued to teach in the name of Jesus. And so in our passage this morning, uh, we see that their faithful obedience to God's commands has led to opposition and to suffering and, and to rejection. And as the high priest uses his authority to arrest the apostles and as the penalties for obedience uh, to God's commands become increasingly severe, the question becomes, you know, is there ever a moment uh, when God is no longer in control? You know, is, there, is there ever a moment when the high priests and the Sadducees have the upper hand? Because uh, there's certainly moments when it looks like it. Uh, well, some of y'all may remember this show. Uh, you know, I was thinking I was going to call it in, in the late 1980s, uh, which sounds like a funny thing to say. But in the late 1980s, uh, there was a television show entitled Who's the Boss? And uh, the reason it had that title uh, was that in that show, Tony Danza played the role of an ex-baseball player who had turned into a housekeeper for a wealthy woman. And, uh, and by doing so, it kind of the stereotypical relationship between a male boss and a female housekeeper was reversed. Uh, and throughout the show, as their relationship develops, you know, that question of who's, who's really the boss here is kind of explored and, and revisited in lots of ways. Uh, well, throughout the Bible, we also encounter this, this question of who's the boss. Uh, we encounter times when the authority and the power of God is challenged. Uh, times when the question is asked, who really is in charge of all these things? Uh, times when the authority and the power of earthly leaders, uh, when the authority and power of false gods um, are pitted against the authority and the power of the true God. And each time, God proves to be superior, even though circumstances appeared to show the opposite was true. Uh, In the book of Exodus, uh, we see God proven to be infinitely more powerful than Pharaoh or the Egyptian gods as Moses leads the people of Israel out of 400 years of slavery. Uh, In 1 Samuel, we see God proven to be more powerful than the gods of the Philistines as the captured ark is placed in the temple of Dagon, and in the morning they come and they find a the, um, the statue broken into pieces. Uh, in First Kings, we see God proven to be more powerful as he responds to the prayers of Elijah when the 400 prophets of Baal go unanswered. In each of those situations, God proves to be superior to any other authority or power, even though the circumstances seem to be saying otherwise. 
Uh, you know, but if you think about it, before God led the people out of Egypt, they spent 400 years in slavery. Uh, before God broke the idol of Dagon, the Israelites were defeated in battle and the ark was captured. That's how they put it in the temple in the first place. Uh, before God consumed Elijah's offering, Elijah and any other surviving faithful prophet were on the run from Ahab and Jezebel. And this is what's happening in our passage today. The apostles have obeyed God's commands. Uh, they have refused to obey man rather than God. And they are publicly arrested, put on trial, and they're facing serious consequences at the hands of the high priests and of the Sadducees. And the question that we face in this passage is the same question that we've seen throughout the Bible. Is God really the boss? Is he really in charge? Or is there some other power or authority calling the shots? And, and the reason that this question matters for us today is because as we, like the apostles and, and many believers before us, uh, as we encounter opposition, uh, suffering, and even rejection for faithfully obeying God's commands, you know, we may begin to wonder if God really is the one who's in charge, if God really is still in charge of this world. You know, do we still believe that, um, oh, the hymn, that, that though the wrong is off so strong, he is the ruler yet? Do we really believe that when the wrong becomes directed at us? And, and here's how Kent Hughes explains the importance of this passage for us. He says, Acts 5 is helpful to all of us because though few of us will probably face overt persecution, as did the early church, none of us will entirely escape the world's repression. And so what we see in this passage this morning is that in spite of the apparent power of the religious rulers in Jerusalem, God is superior in every way. And since we know that there will be moments when our faithfulness to God's word and our faithfulness to his commands uh, may very well lead to opposition and to suffering and to rejection, you know, we need to pay careful attention to the truths that we find in this passage today. And so this morning, we're going to take a few minutes to, to walk through the passage together, and then we're going to take a brief look at three important truths to remember in the moments when faithful obedience comes with a high cost. So that's the plan for this morning. And as we begin, we're going to look at the initial arrest of the apostles. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 for us. Uh, uh, only, I'm only preaching on 17 through 18. Dave read 12 through 16 last week, but it really flows into each other. So I'm going to read 12 through 18 of this chapter. They say this, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up, along with the, all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. All right, so in verses 12 through 16, we see this picture of an incredibly powerful and fruitful ministry. And then in verses 17 through 18, we're told that the high priest and the Sadducees rise up and have the apostles arrested because they're jealous of this incredibly powerful ministry that the Holy Spirit-empowered apostles are carrying out in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, you read that, the first verses in chapter, or verses 12 through 16, Incredible things are happening. Um, these are the things that Jesus was doing in his lifetime, right? And now his disciples, his apostles, are carrying out the same ministry, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so the religious leaders are jealous of the ministry. And when you read the Gospels, you don't hear as much about the Sadducees uh, because Jesus spent a lot of his time 
uh, teaching outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but the Sadducees were, the, were basically the ruling party in Israel. Uh, and this status came from the fact that their connection with the high priesthood and their connection with the temple and because of their connection to the Roman government. And so the Sadducees, who were based in Jerusalem and primarily based around the temple, could not fail to notice the growth and the spread of the church, and nor did they believe that they could afford to ignore the spread and growth of the church any longer. And so we're told that they were jealous of the apostles, and because of this jealousy, they had the apostles arrested with a plan to try these men in court the following day. Uh, but in verses 19 through 21, we find out that God has other plans for the apostles. So let me read verses 19 through 21 again. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Uh, so in what Daryl Bach calls the ultimate cosmic overrule of Jewish leadership, uh, God sends an angel to free the apostles from jail and gives them instructions on what to do next. And we don't know exactly how the angel frees them from jail. You know, other times in the Bible, we're told exactly how it happens. You know, we don't know exactly how the angel frees them from jail with the door still locked or with the guards still in place. But we're told that they're freed. And then the angel tells them to return to the temple, which is where they just got arrested. Tells them to go back to the temple and proclaim there the new life that is available in Jesus Christ. And so that's what they do. And meanwhile, you can only imagine the high priest kind of getting up that morning. He's heading to the place where the Sanhedrin's going to meet. Uh, he is fully expecting to deal with this problem once and for all. Uh, but again, listen to what happens next. This is verses 21 through 24. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did, who came did not find them in prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of it. And this is, uh, what, what an incredibly embarrassing moment for the high priest, right? Uh, they call the Sanhedrin together, including um, even some of the lower courts. Okay, basically, they're saying they call everybody together. And the, you know, the Sanhedrin is kind of like a Jewish Supreme Court. He calls everybody together. And they send for the people they're going to try. And when they send for them, they're gone. Uh, but the doors are locked and the guards are still there. And we're told that they were greatly perplexed, uh, which makes sense in the light of the fact that the Sadducees don't believe in angels and they don't believe in miracles. Uh, so they really couldn't explain where their prisoners had gone or how they escaped from locked and guarded cells. And so they had this moment. They call for the disciples. The disciples aren't there. They have no idea where they are or what to do. They're greatly perplexed. And then in verses 25 and 26, they track them down again. They say, uh, but someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And so in the middle of the high priest and the captain of the temple guard kind of standing around being very confused, a report comes back that the apostles are at the temple and they're teaching the people again. And so the captain of the guard goes with his officers, and they very carefully rearrest the apostles. Um, and they have to do this carefully uh, because they don't want to upset the crowd, uh, because the crowd realizes what their re religious authorities don't. don't. Um, the crowds recognize that these men are from God. And so the arrest is made almost by like a polite request, because the guard is afraid of the crowd. And they bring the apostles to the council, 
And really, they don't want to even put their hands on them. They just invite them to come back. Um, and throughout the whole scene of the high priest kind of attempting to successfully arrest and then jail and then bring to trial the apostles, you know, we can see that Luke is juxtaposing the power and the authority of the high priest uh, with the power and the authority of God as the story kind of unfolds. And then in verses 27 through 28, the high priest has finally gotten the apostles to the trial and he brings his charges against them. So listen to these verses, 27 and 28. He says this, When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so the high priest, he's got them there. He levels two main accusations against them. The first accusation is that the apostles have been completely ignoring the order to stop ministering in the name of Jesus, and that they have instead filled the city of Jerusalem to the brim with their teaching. If you just think of Jerusalem as a cup, right? He's going, you guys have filled this cup uh, with teachings about Jesus when we told you to stop. And then the second accusation is that they have been telling everyone that the high priests and the other religious leaders in Jerusalem are guilty of the blood of Jesus. And of course, the apostles are guilty of both of these things. Uh, they haven't for a second stopped spreading the good news of the gospel of the risen Jesus Christ, and they haven't stopped telling the story of the Messiah rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, crucified and buried, but raised on the third day. And it's interesting to even hear the religious leaders complain about this. You know, they're the ones who, who cried out, let his blood be on us and on our children. And now uh, they complain that the apostles are undermining uh, their position by accusing them of doing exactly what they had done. And, and, and one commentator kind of he explains the tension this way. He says, uh, the Jewish leaders regarded the death of Jesus as a result of the legal trial of a malefactor. The Christians were making it out to be an act of murder and thus claiming that the Jewish leaders were guilty men. And this matters so much to the religious leaders because it was costing them followers. Uh, who's going to come to the temple and ask murderers to offer sacrifices for them to, so that they can be forgiven, right? Uh, you can see how this charge uh, mattered to the high priest. Uh, so the high priest, he challenges the apostles with these accusations. And I absolutely love Peter's response. Um, you know, as we read the New Testament, we see Peter kind of mature and grow. But he never loses some of what makes him Peter, right? He never loses that boldness, his willing to say things that maybe the rest of us wouldn't say. And you really see it on display in this answer. I'm going to read verses 29 through 32. Uh, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, what, an, what an incredible thing uh, to say to the men who put Jesus to death and who have you on trial right now. Uh, in response to the accusation that they aren't obeying the order to stop ministering, in the name of Jesus, Peter says, well... Uh, of course we aren't. <laughs> of course we haven't stopped, right? Uh, we aren't going to stop preaching and to stop performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And then Peter essentially says that they're teaching the religious leaders, uh, that they're teaching that the religious leaders of Jerusalem did in fact kill Jesus because they killed Jesus. Uh, so that's kind of Peter's response. You know, in their efforts to put an end to Jesus and his followers, uh, they killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree, uh, which the Old Testament tells us brings a curse on the person who's killed this way. So Peter's saying, you tried to curse God's son, and you tried to curse his memory by hanging him on a tree, um, and it didn't work. You know, they wanted to put an end to this. 
The high priest wanted to put an end to this when they killed Jesus. But Peter tells them that the one that they rejected, the one that they killed, uh, has been raised up and is exalted, sitting at the right hand of God. As Israel's leader, he calls him a prince and as Israel's savior. And so Peter tells this group of priests that Jesus is the one granting repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel instead of them, uh, which was quite the claim. Uh, And then he tells them that the apostles are witnesses of this, and so is the Holy Spirit that is filling them because they obey God and not men. If you remember, they arrested them because they were jealous of all this ministry that's going on, all these healings, uh, the boldness they were teaching with. And Peter says, well, we have the Holy Spirit because we're obeying God, which means you guys don't have the Holy Spirit because you're not obeying God. You actually killed Jesus. Um, He's calling them to repentance. Um, He's pointing out their sin to them. Yeah, so this was not an answer designed to uh, appease the council. Uh, you can almost imagine the other apostles kind of like looking at each other as Peter's going, right? Like, like did we, are you sure Peter's the guy we want doing this? Um, you can almost imagine them kind of getting anxious as Peter's talking. Uh, but Peter boldly confronts the high priest and the whole council with the truth. And the result of Peter's answer is about what you would expect. Uh, verse 33 says, But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill him. So just like the crowd who heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, the members of the Sanhedrin are cut to the quick. Um, another, the Hebrew or the Greek says it's actually like being sawed in two. And they're, they're wounded by Peter's words. They're wounded by these accusations. Uh, they, they know that he's right. But instead of responding with repentance like the crowd on the day of Pentecost, they erupt in fury and they're ready to kill the apostles. And, but in this moment, a wise and well-respected Pharisee named Gamaliel rises up. He speaks to the assembly Uh, The Sanhedrin was composed of both Sadducees and Pharisees. And while Sadducees rejected things like miracles and angels and and resurrection from the dead, the Pharisees uh, affirmed all those things. And so Gamaliel sends the apostles out. Uh, He speaks words of caution to the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin's outraged. Uh, They're so outraged at being accused of murdering Jesus that they're ready to murder the apostles. And and listen to Gamaliel's words. He says, uh, says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people who stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theotis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And so in this moment when the Sanhedrin's in a, just outraged at what Peter has just said, Gamaliel reminds them of two previous times when someone rose up, developed a following, And now each time that happened, when the leader was killed, his followers dispersed, and the threat kind of ended. It brought an end to the movement. And his logic is this. You know, Jesus rose up. He developed a large following, but he's been put to death. And if this is just another man-made movement, his followers will soon disperse. Uh, We'll see it happen just like we've seen it before. But if God is at work in what is happening, if God is at work in what the apostles are doing, then there will be no successful opposition, no matter how hard they try, because the Sanhedrin will be opposing God. So essentially, Gamaliel encourages them to wait and see. He says, wait and see what will happen with this movement, and his argument wins the day. At verse 40, we're told uh, they took his advice, 
And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So the apostles are called back in, and while the Sanhedrin doesn't uh, pursue their death, they're still punished pretty severely. Uh, we're told that they're flogged, and it's easy, like, oh, they're flogged, and then released. You know, but the flogging was actually a pretty serious punishment. Uh, they're whipped, uh, beaten with whips 39 times. That's happened to Paul five times later, we we're told. So this is a serious punishment. It's meant to discourage the apostles from continuing to disobey the commands of the council. Uh, they're punished. They are once again ordered to refrain from teaching or doing ministry in the name of Jesus, and they're released. And perhaps the high priest believed that they had done enough to bring this movement to an end, uh, but they were wrong. Uh, they were wrong. One commentator says, The opposition of the truth is like the confrontation of wind against fire. It inflames it even more. Such is the admirable work of God's Spirit who gives confidence in Christ and assurance of victory in Him. You know, as we read the last two verses of this chapter, we see that the actions of the council, is, is, they're like wind against fire. You know, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't douse it, it stirs it up. And so listen again, I'm going to read verses 41 and 42. It says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So what an incredible response to all that occurred. Uh, they've been arrested. They were released by an angel. They were rearrested kind of willingly. Uh, they're on trial. Uh, Peter says, we're guilty of everything you said, and also you're guilty. Uh, the Sanhedrin wants to kill them. Uh, Gamaliel encourages uh, restraint. So, they're, so instead of killing them, they're just beaten and released. And then they're like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to rejoice in our sufferings, and we're going to keep doing what got us in all this trouble in the first place. You know, they left rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And again, if you think back, these are the men who ran away, right, the first time when Jesus was arrested. And now they're rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer for him. And as you continue reading the New Testament, you see that this theme of rejoicing and suffering comes up again and again uh, because the gospel of Jesus and the hope of forgiveness of sins and restoration and new life in him, it was worth suffering for. And so the punishment that was meant to kind of douse the flame, instead it was a wind against the fire. And the last verse tells us that the apostles continued every day in homes and in the temple, uh, continuing to preach uh, the gospel, to continue sharing the new hope of new life in Jesus Christ, um, continuing to believe that they must obey God rather than men, no matter what the cost. And so in this passage, we see, we see the power and the authority of those who desired to see the end of the church uh, pitted against the power and authority of God. And as the story unfolds, we see that God is superior uh, to the powers of this world in every way. And so the question for us this morning is, you know, what, what can we learn? You know, what can we learn from this passage to help strengthen our faith for the moments in our lives when faithful obedience comes with a cost? You know, whether that cost looks like uh, turning away from a source of entertainment that we just really enjoy but it's not good for us, or whether it's saying no to a friend or if it's losing opportunities at school or in the workplace, or just saying no to ourselves. You know, discipleship comes with a cost. So what can we learn from this passage to help strengthen our faith for the moments in our lives when faithful obedience comes at a cost? Well, this morning, uh, before we go, we're going to take just a few minutes to look at uh, three important truths. Three important truths that we find in this passage that we can remember in the moments when faithful obedience comes at a cost. And the first truth from this passage to remember is this. God is the superior power. God is the superior power. And this is a truth that we see all throughout the Bible, but it's especially on display in this passage. 
Uh, God's power is on display everywhere in the story. If you think back to the beginning of the story, the whole reason that the apostles are arrested is because God is working so powerfully through them, and people are healed, and thousands are responding to the gospel, and so jealousy arises in the heart of the high priest and through the Sadducees, and so he has them arrested because God is working so powerfully. And then God sends an angel to rescue the apostles from being held captive by a group who didn't even believe in angels. You know, so that's a, kind of a power move right there, right? Uh, the Sadducees are like, hey, there's no angels. And God's like, well, I'm going to send one, and he's going to free the, the apostles from prison. Um, and so the high priest who is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. If you think about who the high priest is, and we say the name high priest, high priest enters the Holy of Holies. He offers sacrifices for the people of Israel. Uh, he is completely and publicly flummoxed. He's trying to figure out how his prisoners escaped a locked and guarded room, uh, all because God sent an angel that he said didn't exist to release them. Uh, when they discover that the apostles are back at the temple teaching the people uh, the words of life and teaching the people the gospel, uh, they're, they're afraid to arrest them. You know, God's power is on display in this. The captain of the guard is afraid to, to arrest them, and so he basically politely requests that they come along with him back to the trial, and the apostles go with him. You know, as you read the story, there's no question that God is the superior power, and that is, that's still the truth for us, uh, still the truth for us. In the face of Earthly authorities who may seek to oppose, oppress, or persecute the people of God. God is always and has, God always has been, God always will be the superior power. And so the first truth in this passage to remember when faithful obedience comes at a cost is that God is the superior power. Uh, the second truth from this passage to remember when faithful obedience comes at a cost is this. Uh, Jesus is the superior Savior. Jesus is the superior Savior. You know, as we read this passage, uh, we're struck by the truth that Jesus is the Savior. Uh, when Peter responds to the high priest, he says some incredibly bold things to the ones who, have, who uh, up until this moment, had had the responsibility of offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the people of Israel since the creation of the tabernacle, uh, since the designation of Aaron as the first high priest, right? Like, Peter's like, actually, Jesus does this, not you. Uh, Peter tells us that in spite of the efforts of the religious leaders to curse Jesus and to curse his memory by crucifying him on a cross, God raised him from the dead and that God has exalted Jesus to take the position of authority at his right hand. So Jesus is not a failed leader of an earthly movement who they killed. He is the resurrected ruling Messiah who they rejected and they're guilty of his blood. And only in Jesus will Israel find repentance and forgiveness for their sins. And so in words similar to what we find in the book of Hebrews, Peter tells us that Jesus is the new high priest. He is now the one who represents us to God. He is superior to the old high priest in every way because he's without sin. And so this world, this world is full of would-be saviors. Uh, you hear all kinds of claims, uh, all kinds of promises that will rescue us from whatever's troubling us. Uh, we can find all kinds of promises, uh, whether it's following a specific person, uh, following a specific lifestyle, joining a, a movement. Um, we might even hear that salvation can be found by following no one but yourself. You know, the truth is that Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And it's only in him that we will find true forgiveness for our sins, that we can be restored with our God. And so you can compare Jesus to all and to anyone this world has to offer, and he will always be the only true Savior. And that's what Peter told the high priest um, with the threat of death hanging over him, and it's still true today. Jesus is the superior Savior. He is the only way for us to find repentance, for us to find forgiveness for our sins. And so the second truth that we remember when faithful obedience comes with the cost is that Jesus is our superior Savior. The third truth from this passage to remember when faithful obedience comes at a cost is this. Christianity is a superior movement. 
Christianity is the superior movement. You know, in our story, the high priest desires to bring Christianity to an end. He wants to end the church. Uh, but he's dissuaded by Gamaliel from having the apostles put to death that day. And instead, they agree that they're going to wait and see what happens. What, what's going to become of the followers of Jesus? You know, they, they wonder, well, will they, will they falter now that they don't have a leader? Now that Jesus is dead, what's going to happen to the church? Will they falter or will they continue proving that this movement was from God? And as you look at the history of the church, you see that Gamaliel is right. Uh, that those who have attempted to oppose the church have fought a losing battle because they have found themselves not just opposing a handful of Christians and a handful of believers. They've, they've been opposing God. And you and I sitting here today are evidence. Uh, we are evidence that this movement has not faltered. Uh, God's people have faithfully shared the words of life. Uh, they have faithfully shared the gospel of Jesus Christ from generation to generation, from shore to shore, from people group to people group. Until today, you know, we're told there's about 2.38 billion people, which is about a third of the population on the earth, who claim to follow Jesus Christ as their Savior. Um, so if you think about Gamaliel saying, wait and see, um, we've waited and we've seen, right? Uh, the people, the church did not disperse. Uh, God is still carrying his church forward. You know, Christianity has proven to be the superior movement uh, because of the superior power of God and because Jesus Christ truly is the superior Savior. Uh, the only way to find repentance and forgiveness of sins. And, and as we remember these truths, you know, we strengthen our faith for the moments that surely will come when obedience to God's word, when obe obedience to God's commands uh, will come with a high cost. And we do this, we remember these truths um, so that we can be assured uh, that though the wrong seems also strong, God is the ruler yet, right? We, we can believe this, even in the hard moments, even when the wrong is directed towards us, as we remember these things, that God is the superior power, that Jesus is the superior Savior, and that Christianity is the superior movement, uh, we're able to persevere, uh, to find endurance in the face of suffering, uh, to even rejoice in the face of suffering for Christ.